The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Please open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're going to be looking uh, this morning at John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. As we continue looking at the I Am of John and uh, Jesus' seven different I Am confession statements that He makes us, and this morning we're looking at I Am the Light of the World and looking at how we can move out of the shadows from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And I want to invite you once again to stand in reverence gratefully for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father Who sent me? In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because His hour had not yet come. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have not left us without a witness, Lord, that You have not left us to the darkness, but, Lord, You have spoken. You have lighted up our path, that we may see, that we may walk, that we may know where it is that we should go. And, and Lord, that path leads us directly to Jesus. He is our way. He is our life. He is our truth. Lord, I pray that today You would help us move out of the darkness. Lord, that You would help us to live in the light. That You would help us to not judge according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Illuminate Your Word for us this morning through Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there is a new Batman movie out. I tried to see it with Nikki Friday night, but I refused to pay $12 to sit on the front row of a movie theater. And so 
uh, we ended up not being able to go, even though it was playing like 15 different times. Um, none of them worked. You know, we're not the biggest superhero family. We're nothing like the Abdelgani family, uh, who roamed the streets of downtown LaGrange to serve and protect. In fact, I uh, was in um, LaGrange Coffee Roasters this past week, and uh, Kennedy walked in accompanied by a very handsome young little guard who was like a hybrid of Spider-Man and Iron Man, I think. It's like whatever he could find laying around the house. But I do like Batman, I have to admit. And the reason why is because of all the superheroes, I find him to be the most relatable. You know, like he, he's, he's vincible. <laughs> he, he's a human and he's enhanced and stuff, but, but he could die. And so he's more human. He gets beat up a lot, you know. He has to go recover in the mansion with his butler. <laughs> but, but you also know that Batman is very dark. It's, it's, all of the movies are like that. You know, even the, the very first one in the 90s with, um, what was the guy? Michael Keaton. Yeah, him. They're very dark. They're very dark thematically. And increasingly, the movies themselves are like literally very dark. Like there's no light. It's always night. Everything is dark. And, and in fact, I was reading an article about this this past week. And this isn't just Batman. This is also a, a very popular trend right now in American film generally. That there's less color in American film. That there's a fad towards dull, gray dark, even when they re-release an old movie, if you go and compare, typically the new release of it is very dark compared to the original. And that's interesting to me. It's interesting to me because this fad kind of corresponds to, I think, a pretty dark time in our history. Pretty dark time culturally. I mean, we just came out of a pandemic Still with the remnants of that happening, you have crime rising, you have inflation, you have all the mental health statistics are trending upwards, there's, there's more mental health disease, mental health problems, there's more suicides now than there has been. All of those numbers are going in the wrong direction. We're now looking at a large-scale land war in Europe, something that hasn't happened for over 80 years since World War II. And, and it's interesting to me because throughout history, you can usually get a sense of the mood of the time by analyzing the art. And so, you know, a lot of the famous artwork that you and I could recognize now, things like the Mona Lisa, right? These things were painted during the Renaissance, which was a very exciting time in history where people were rediscovering the classic wisdom and, and, and the original languages, and they were excited, and nature was, was playing a huge role in that. And so that's reflected in the art. Romantic art in the 19th century is very similar. You, you have a lot of landscapes and nature, and the art draws you in. It's very romantic. You, know, you, can, you can capture that time. And what is our art? Well, right now it seems to be very dark. And that's interesting to me because you might think, well, if we're living in a very dark time culturally, 
wouldn't we want to use our art to try to escape that? Like, wouldn't we want to paint a contrast, right? So that we could live in the contrast, at least escape it while we're watching the movie. But that doesn't seem to be happening. It seems that when we grow accustomed to darkness, we begin to prefer it. And that's actually a theme that we see in the Bible too. Light and darkness is a central theme of John's Gospel. You'll remember the very first sermon in this series. We started in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And if we keep reading in that passage, eventually, by the time we get to verse 5, in fact, right there at the beginning, we read this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus... The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is a theme that is introduced in John 1, but it is a theme that we see throughout the Gospel of John, and we see it even coming up in surprising ways. When Nicodemus, the Pharisee, approaches Jesus in John chapter 3, John tells us that Nicodemus comes to him under the cover of darkness. He comes to him at night. He doesn't want to be exposed. He's interested, but he's not willing to publicly identify with Jesus at that point. Now, John isn't just inventing this imagery. This is imagery that we find throughout the Bible, throughout the Scriptures. By the time we get to our passage in John chapter 8, what's going on here is that the people of Israel are in Jerusalem and they're celebrating a feast. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a celebration of the Exodus, a celebration of God redeeming His people and leading them out of slavery in Egypt. And you'll remember, how did He lead them? He led them by a glory cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. He led them by His light. He, he lit the way, and they were supposed to follow the way. We read other passages. We, we've actually been reading about them this morning in the service, but in Psalm 27.1, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Over and over again, the Bible, God's Word, the Scriptures, the law of God is compared to a lamp that lights our way, a light for our feet, for our path. The prophets tell us, That God is going to be a light to the nations. There's going to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And the nations are going to be drawn to that light. Now it seems that if we put all these passages together, that when we see this theme introduced in Scripture, that two things are in view. One of two things, at least. God uses light to describe His revelation. Right? And that makes sense because when you're in darkness, you need a source. How am I going to see in darkness? Well, the revelation of God enables us to see in the midst of the darkness. But also, God's light is described as salvation. We come into the light, meaning we come into life. The sun even, the source of life on this planet. Jesus, God, is our source of life. He saves us. He redeems us. And so when Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, I believe He is talking about all of that. I am the revelation of God. I am the salvation who has come to save you. 
All of that's included. The first thing I want us to see, we're going to look at verse 12 alone here. You won't live in darkness anymore. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I told you a moment ago that he's in the temple saying this, and he's saying this at a time where they're celebrating a past event of redemption. Okay, So there's all this stuff happening. It's a festive atmosphere. One of the ways they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles is they would light torches in the temple yard. And so Jesus is probably standing in the midst of these lights and he's saying, I am the light of the world. You are celebrating God's previous provision of light, but understand something, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the epitome of God's revelation. I am the salvation that all of those small episodes of salvation has been pointing to. Jesus is the ultimate light. He is the true light. He is the final one that God has sent to save His people. And He says it to them. It's not uncontroversial for him to say that. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He uses the language here of following, which is another allusion to the Exodus story. Because what was Israel supposed to do? They were supposed to physically follow the light that God had given them. They are Jesus says, you are, I am, we are supposed to follow Him with our lives. Follow here is a synonym for another word that John often uses in the Gospel, that Jesus often speaks, which is to believe in Him. This is the same thing. Jesus is just simply using a different way to talk about the same thing. You want to believe in Me? You must follow Me. This is important for us to understand because when he, it's easy for us to take believe and make that this little intellectual thing that kind of sits dormant in our lives, right? Of course I believe, right? I believe a lot of things, right? I, I believe that China is on the other side of the world, but that doesn't impact my day-to-day life. Like We have all kinds of beliefs that we just sort of file away into the back of our minds. And it's tempting, and people have often made the mistake that the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about is that kind of faith. Yeah, I believe that's true, but it doesn't impact our lives. But when Jesus says, you follow me, I am the light of the world, but you must follow me, He's talking about something different. He's talking about something active. He's talking about something that encompasses everything about us. We follow Him. This isn't a Sunday morning only kind of thing. This is all the time. Listen to me, church. Nobody here is a Christian because you self-identify as a Christian. You understand that? We, we live in a really confused, confused culture right now where you just sort of pick what you want to be and because you self-identify as something, that's what you are. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. 
You don't just self-identify as a Christian. Notice what Jesus says here. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there is a break that happens when you come to follow Jesus. You used to walk in the darkness, but when you follow the light, you no longer walk in the darkness. There's a break. There's discontinuity. You were going in this direction, but you're not going in this direction anymore. Your life is no longer clouded in darkness. And you may say, well, that's obvious, but it's not. It's not. It wasn't obvious to me in the cultural context of my childhood in South Alabama, a culture that's probably not very far away from the culture in Oldham County, Kentucky, to be completely honest with you, in all kinds of Bible Belt places. You know what's true about the culture that I grew up in? The culture that, in the culture that I grew up in, everybody likes Jesus. Jesus is really cool. You, you want to write a hit country song in Nashville? Make sure you mention Jesus in it. Everybody will like that song. But the, the problem is that everybody likes Jesus, but among all the people I grew up around, Jesus didn't make that big of a difference in anybody's life. You see, we can name Jesus, we can talk about Jesus, we can be cool with Jesus, but Jesus says on His terms, when you come to follow me, you no longer walk in darkness, but you now have the light of life. It's as drastic as going from a pitch black dark room into the bright sunshine of a summer day. This is a huge difference. Saving faith and, and this is me not just looking at this passage, but if we analyze all of the references in the Bible to saving faith, we have to conclude that saving faith is drastic. Saving faith requires everything. It's all or nothing. It's death versus life. It's darkness versus light. Saving faith changes everything. Nothing will ever be the same. That's really important for us to understand. I remember when I, when I got saved, I was 20 years old. I was in my hometown. I've told you all this story before, but one of my friend's mothers, who was a very church-going lady, and when she saw a lot of the changes that I was making, that I didn't want to walk in darkness anymore, and so there were a lot of habits and patterns in my life that I was tossing out and replacing with what I thought would lead me towards life in Christ, she said to me, why do you have to be so radical with this? And I'll never forget just struggling with this because I thought she would be very happy about these changes, but it was like she was the other way. And in church, the longer I've reflected on that, it's now been 20 years since then. Been a Christian for as long as I wasn't almost now. But I've concluded even more than I, than I knew then that, church, there's no other way. There's no other way. The gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Now, it doesn't happen immediate. 
It's not always immediate. There's going to be some immediate changes. It's a process. But, but overall, Jesus wants to completely upend every assumption that we formerly had. And he wants to rearrange it and orient everything towards him because he's not content until he has changed us so that we look like him. And that's a process that starts on this earth in this life. It's a process that he will complete in the next one. But it's the same plan for all of us. He's the light of the world. Whoever follows Him will not live or walk in darkness anymore, but will have the light of life. And you can see in, in this, this use of light of life, you can see the revelation and the salvation coming together in Jesus. We have the light, the revelation, that leads us to life, to salvation. Jesus is the light the revelation of God, He is also our salvation, accomplished through what He did on the cross in His resurrection. So what's the alternative? What is it to live in the darkness? Well, thankfully, I told you earlier, this theme comes up in John over and over again. So turn back with me to John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is right after, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. A few verses later, we read this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is a fascinating scripture to me. This is the judgment. This is the conclusion. This is the analysis. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people didn't come to Jesus because they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And the text tells us that they don't want to come to the light because they don't want their evil works to be exposed. This is the alternative. You can come to the light. You can stay in the darkness. There's nothing in the middle. Now, Dave Carroll and I have been recording a podcast, and the topic has been apologetics, and we, we talked about the existence of God. And, and one of the things that, that I'm always, I always think is important to point out when we do an apologetics discussion is that we can make all the arguments in the world for the rational reasons why God exists, but at the end of the day, that's never going to lead someone to saving faith. And the reason for that is because no one is staying away from Jesus on purely intellectual grounds. You see, John three nineteen through 21 It's never just an intellectual question. That's what John's telling us here. It's not a perception problem. It's a preference problem. It's not that people don't see Jesus and aren't convinced of His authority. It's that they don't prefer Jesus and they don't want Him to be the king over them. They love the darkness. 
People do not come to Jesus because they prefer the darkness over the light. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a fictional book called The Great Divorce. And it's fiction. It's important to understand that. He's not saying this is how it really happens. But in the book, there's a bus. And people from hell get on the bus and they take a trip to the foothills of heaven. And what's fascinating about the story, and there's so many things to talk about that I'm not have time for, but so many of them, when they get to heaven, they have the option to stay there. And most of the people on the bus decide to get back on the bus to go back, that they don't want it. They prefer hell to heaven. Church, I think there's some truth to that. It's important for us to understand that intellectual objections to the faith are usually formed on the back end, not the front end. Intellectual objections to the faith are usually formed because the people forming those objections do not want the gospel to be true, and so they begin looking for arguments. What are some arguments that I can find? Well, here are some, because I really don't want to believe this. I really would rather stay in the darkness. I really don't want my works to be exposed. I prefer the darkness rather than the light. But if we're in Christ, that relationship has changed. One of the clearest signs of genuine faith is a change in your relationship to darkness. That's what Jesus is saying back to John 8, 12. It's one of the clearest signs of genuine faith is that we no longer prefer the darkness. We no longer prefer the sin. The things that used to delight us now cause us heartache. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't prefer that. I want to be righteous. I want to have my joy in Christ. I long for Him. And also, we no longer fear exposure because we no longer have to hide. Because when we've come out of the darkness and into the light, we've come out of guilt and shame and we've come into forgiveness and reconciliation. So we don't have to stay there. I, we ha, we've been having testimony time in our BFGs, and I've loved hearing the testimonies. And last week, I heard the, a powerful testimony from one of our BFG members who, who talked about how, how afraid she used to be to allow people to get close. And how even coming to Ashland, she wanted to just leave and go to a different place. Because people here just won't let you hide. Amen, church. Keep it up. But how thankful she is now that she doesn't feel like she has to hide anymore. And that's not something we've done. That's something the gospel has done. That's something the Holy Spirit has done. You don't come here as the one sinner in the room. You come here and you join a community of sinners saved by grace. And so now we can live in the light. There's no secrets about it anymore. Our only hope is Christ. So you won't live in the darkness anymore if you come to the light. Second, you won't judge by the same criteria. You won't judge by the same criteria. Look with me at verse 13. So 
Jesus gets immediate rejection, immediate response. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus, I'm not listening to you because the law of Moses says that that new things, new, new testimony has to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And you're standing here by yourself saying you're the light of the world. You can't bear witness about yourself. You need someone else to bear witness to your authority. And what do we see here? We see John 3, 19-21 on display in the response of the Pharisees. They love the darkness, and so they're not going to come to the light. And notice what their love of the darkness does. When we love the darkness, the darkness blinds us. And so they're not even going to consider Jesus' claims. There's immediate rejection. There is a frantic search in their hearts for reasons not to trust His claims. There's a, a, an appeal even to the, to the law of Moses. And we know that's in mind because Jesus is going to reference it later in the text. And so what do we do when we're confronted by the light? We seek to discredit Jesus. That's still the strategy today. We want to ignore Jesus. We need reason to ignore Jesus. How do we ignore Jesus? We must discredit Jesus. Jesus can't be who He says He is. Now, we don't do it by appealing to the law of Moses. We don't know the law of Moses in our culture, do we? And so we come up with new ways to reject Jesus, new ways to discredit Jesus, new ways to redefine Him. You know how we like to discredit Jesus today? We can't reject Him outright, so we come up with this new Jesus that's more palatable to the American sensibilities, right? Jesus isn't threatening if if we can redefine Him and make Him something different. So that's the theology of America today. It's got four tenets. Here's what most people believe about Jesus in the world today. Number one, Jesus wants me to be happy. Number two, Jesus wants me to be nice to other people. Number three, Jesus will pretty much leave me alone as long as I do that. Number four, Jesus will take me to heaven when I die. Church, that's not Jesus. You don't get to make up who Jesus is to make Him less offensive so that you can live your life any way you want to. Jesus tells us on His authority who He is. And if we don't like Him, we just need to know what's at stake. We're choosing the darkness rather than the light. We're choosing death, not life. Jesus responds, verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus basically says in response, I, of all the people in the world, 
am most qualified to bear witness about myself because of where I've come from and where I am going. Remember I told you the first week that this is a very important theme. That if you really want to understand the theology of John's gospel, you need to have the the letter V in your mind because Jesus came from heaven down to earth and He goes back to heaven. Jesus' credentials are found in His nature as the Son, the eternal Son of God, the One who made all things. And when He's done with His work on earth, He will return victorious to where He came from. And so that's what Jesus says to them here. I have authority to bear witness about myself. Jesus is self-validating. So this is really important. There's no higher authority than Him. This is really important for us to understand because so often we want to prove Jesus by appealing to a different authority. Right? If, if we could just prove from archaeology that Jesus really came, then everybody would believe. If we could just prove from, from history that Jesus really came, then everybody would believe. But, but when we do that, we're making the highest authority whatever it is we're appealing to. Jesus is the I am. Jesus' words are the highest authority. We believe the gospel based upon what Jesus himself has said. There's nothing higher than the creator of the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus says in verse 15, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And what he means by this is that they're analyzing him and making conclusions about him based upon human standards alone, based upon the criteria of fallen humanity. They're looking at appearances, and and they're concluding things about Jesus based simply on what they see with their physical eyes. Remember last week, we, we know your parents. We know where you're from, right? This kind of judgment places ultimate value on appearances. It's it's often driven by greed, by thirst for power, by self-preservation. When Jesus says, I judge no one, it's in the context of how they're judging. What he's saying is there, I don't evaluate things like you do. But then in verse 16, he, he says there's a different kind of judgment. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. That's the key. Jesus' authority is established on more than one witness because Jesus was sent by the Father. And so when Jesus says something, we are to understand that the Father is saying it too because they are united. Jesus is judged because His very presence will divide humanity into those who love the light and those who love the darkness. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. This is what they've had in mind the whole time. Jesus says, I'm following that law too. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. My testimony is established by my Father. The point that Jesus is making here is that the gospel changes everything. That when we come to Jesus, we never see things the same. The Pharisees are proving that they're still blind, that they still love the darkness. 
in Christ, everything changes, church. We don't look at our suffering the same way we used to. Like We see that our suffering that we encounter, it may be painful for now, but God is using it to sanctify us, to grow us, to produce endurance and character in us so that we will look more like Jesus. We no longer place ultimate value on being served because Jesus told us that the pathway to greatness is through serving. We no longer only look at things based on appearances, but we understand that there's a whole lot hidden beneath the surface that we have to consider. We now value things like humility and love. Things that our culture would say, don't follow these things because you'll never get ahead in the world, but we're not trying to get ahead in the world. We're trying to be obedient to the Savior that we follow. So we love. And we seek to be humble. Here's the last thing I want us to see. Verses 19 through 20. They said to him, therefore, because he's talking about his father now, where is your father? Now clearly, they have no idea what he's really talking about. They don't think he's talking about God. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know me. For to really understand that, what we've got to realize is that he's talking to Pharisees, people who studied the law of God for a living. That was their job. They, they studied the Old Testament Scriptures. And when Jesus says that if you knew my Father, you would know me, what he's saying is that your study of the Scriptures ought to have led you to recognize me because I am from the God you say you worship. The very fact that you do not recognize me, Jesus says, proves that you do not really know the God you say you know. So when we read the Bible, church, when we read even the Old Testament, those passages lead us to Jesus all the same. But then he says something else, or this is the conclusion that John writes in verse 20. He says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so they're clearly angry. They clearly think that he is speaking blasphemous words. He's saying this in the temple. But they don't put a hand on him. And John tells us why. Because his hour had not yet come. What does it mean to know Jesus? To know the Father? Well, church, it means to rest in the security of the One who determines when the hour will come. The hour that he's referring to is the hour of the cross. Jesus' very mission was to come and to die as an atonement in the place of sinners to save us, to reconcile us, to bring us to God by faith. We are saved. Jesus came to do that. And the hour is not yet come, and so it's not going to happen. So there's no one who can touch Him until the sovereign God decides. Now you can The sovereign God of the universe is the one who determines the when and the how. 
And in the context of this whole conversation, I find that to be uniquely comforting. Because Jesus begins by saying, I am the light of the world. And this little passage ends with the assurance that a sovereign God controls the destiny of His people. What does it mean to walk in the light, church? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means that we get to live in full assurance that the sovereign God of this universe determines our days and nothing can touch us until the hour He's determined has come. Is that good news? Well, it's the same God who determines the hour is the one who appointed His Son to die and save us. come out of the darkness and to walk in the light is to come out of insecurity, to come out of hopelessness, to come out of uncertainty, and to come to know a God who uses every ounce of His power to bless you eternally. You may be familiar with Plato's cave. If you've ever studied philosophy, it's a pretty famous allegory. Plato's Republic is where it's found. Talking about ancient Greek philosophers now, I bet you didn't think I was going to go there this morning. But the analogy of the cave is really a powerful one. Because in the cave, what Plato describes is that there are people in this allegory, and they're chained to a wall in a cave. And their whole lives are spent there. And their whole lives, they're facing a blank wall in the cave. And it's dark. And they can't turn around. But over their head somewhere, there's a fire burning. And so when things cross before that fire, on the wall that they're looking at, there are images projected, shadows. And they begin to to name the shadows. And they live in this world. That's all they know is facing this blank wall of shadows. And they think that the shadows represent ultimate reality. And they have no idea that there's a real world of color outside that cave. And in Plato's telling of it, they don't even want to leave the cave. Because they've spent their whole lives there. They think this is reality. Why would you want to leave? This is what life is all about. They, they, they sit in excitement as they wait for another shadow to come across the blank wall. Now in Plato's analogy, it's the philosophers who come and liberate them from this world of dark shadows. But church, I want you to know that the philosophers don't bring salvation. Jesus is the one who comes and liberates us from what we think is ultimate reality, but is nowhere close. Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world, and I have come to illuminate the darkness. I have come to grant you life and salvation. You can't see it right now. Because all you've ever known is darkness. And you've been in the darkness for so long that you've come to prefer the darkness. You don't even want to leave. But if you only knew what's outside of this cave, if you only knew that there's a world of color, if you could only see one sunset, your whole world would be changed. 
That's what Jesus is doing. And we live in a world where so many of our neighbors and so many of the people we love want nothing more than to stay in the dark cave and never taste it. Church, we've got to show them. We've got to show them what it looks like to live in the light. Let's pray together.